You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the March 3rd science episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. This week, uh, Jane is not joining us. She'll be on hiatus for a few months with our personal family stuff. So I am joined today by John Dees, a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley's Energy and Resources Group and also a senior science analyst at Carbon Direct Incorporated. John, thank you for coming today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. This is this is a great opportunity. I'm glad to be here. And Bodhi Cabio, did I say that right? I forgot to ask before we start recording. Plus, it's Cabio. Cabio, thank you. Yeah. Bodhi Cabio, PhD candidate also at UC Berkeley's Energy and Resources Group and also a science advisor at Carbon Direct Incorporated. And he's joining us from Italy. So Bodhi, thanks so much for being here today. Of course, really happy to be here. I'm going to be playing John's sidekick today because it's late and John is much more experienced with this stuff, but um, <laughs> well, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing both of your perspectives. And as always, I'm Radhika Mugafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology here at Nori. So earlier this week, Bodhi, you and your Carbon Direct colleague, Alex, Alex, oh my gosh, another hard name, Dolgano, Dolgano? I mean, I'm hardly going to (laughs) complain about hard names. I have one too. Um, I should know better is, you know, penned a really interesting blog post titled accounting for short-term durability in carbon offsetting. And so I was hoping that maybe you could give our listeners a bit of an overview of what your blog post said and your recommendation in that post. For sure, yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's it's fortuitous timing that we're that we're having this uh, the po- this podcast interview today because we just published it on Monday. Um, and for the record, John Dees was also very involved in the writing of that or in, in the thought process of that. Um, Alex and I were the writers, though. Um, so the the kind of core question that we were looking at in this blog post is a lot of carbon removal solutions are. Uh, they they uh, they have short-term carbon storage. So if you think about planting trees or so- storing uh, carbon in soils, uh, that doesn't last forever. Unlike say, you know, something like direct air capture with with CCS, where you're putting it underground and functionally storing it for thousands of years, or mineralization. And when we're when we're talking about carbon offsets, carbon offsets to be effective basically have to be forever. Um, you can think about like. If I buy a 30-year carbon credit today, in 30 years, when that carbon credit is up, I've basically uh, I'm re-emitting carbon emissions in 30 years. So I'm delaying my emissions for 30 years, but I'm not actually completely offsetting my carbon emissions. Um, so this is this is kind of a it's it's kind of a complexity in carbon offsetting, um, and we don't really have good uh, agreed upon frameworks for how to. How to, how to account for that variability in how long carbon is stored. Um, and it's important because, you know, in, in an ideal world, every carbon offset is, is one ton of carbon permanently stored. Um, and so you have, you have no, no re-emission event. Um, but in reality, we have a lot of really good solutions, um, especially nature-based solutions that don't have that, uh, don't have that quality of storing carbon forever. And so we have to figure out ways that we can 
ways that we can effectively integrate those short-term storage solutions like nature-based solutions into carbon offsetting frameworks. So that's kind of that's kind of the high level of the 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 goal we were trying to to, to achieve. Let's see. So um, the the kind of the core question is, I think everyone we can all agree that short-term carbon storage has value. Nature-based solutions have value. For starters, you know there there have been tons of papers that have shown that you know that we can get gigatons of carbon removal through things like forestation. Um, or things like improved forest management or storing more carbon in soils. And so how do we, how can we actually unlock that um, in, in a carbon offsetting framework? So, sorry, it's, it's, a, it's a long blog post. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying, to, trying to hit the important points and set up the, the scaffolding for it. So, so fundamentally though, we have to answer the question of how much do we actually value that time? What is the time value of storing the carbon? And the answer, the answer to that question depends on, it depends on two things, really. It depends on, most importantly, how you, how you use that, that short-term storage. Um, and we developed a framework that uh, encompasses what we're going to be talking about today and encompasses 10-year accounting, um, which we call, uh, basically, there's two approaches to using the short-term credits. There's vertical stacking and horizontal stacking. So if you imagine kind of... Um, if you imagine like a block of your, your one ton of carbon emission laid on a timeline and that carbon emission lasts forever, essentially, um, one way to, to offset that carbon emission forever is to buy a 20 year credit today. And then in 20 years, when that carbon credit is up, you buy another carbon credit. And then when that credit is up, you buy another one. Um, alternatively, in 20 years, you could buy a permanent carbon credit. Say maybe direct air capture has scaled up effectively um, and so it's it's cheaper or it's it's more more widely available. Um, the other approach, which is a little bit less straightforward, and which is I think going to be the the meat of what we talk about today, is uh, vertical stacking, which is basically um, instead of stacking stacking up those twenty year credits over time, instead you buy a bunch of twenty year credits today, and you count up all of the all of the carbon benefits, all of the climate benefits of that carbon removal. So maybe say you could you could run some models and you could decide that uh, if I buy five 20 year credits today, that sort of more or less counterbalances the, the long-term impacts of my one ton of carbon emissions. So these are both potentially valid approaches and they're both ways of integrating these short-term credits. Um, and I think that it's, it's, we're in an exciting time because we're just at the beginning of a rich conversation of um, well, not the beginning. It's it's been around for for quite some time actually, but I think we're at the the uh, uh, we're restarting a rich conversation on how to talk about the time value of carbon storage, um, especially in the context of carbon offsetting. Yeah. So, so that was kind of a yeah high level. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Brody. I appreciate that. Um, I was going to ask John because uh, as Bodhi mentioned earlier, he's been involved in this area for a long time or you know, relatively. I don't think anyone's been in carbon removal for too long, really. Um, but why, why now? Why were you guys thinking that this is the time to start talking about short-term versus long-term durability? I actually like the term durability better than permanence. Um, so I'm gonna try to adopt that in my own language. But what, um, what drove you guys to post this and think about this? Sure. Uh, so um, as, as Bodhi pointed out, this, this conversation is at least 20 years old. And uh, as we're starting to see some of the 
the conversation pop up around this. Folks that were involved in this 20 years ago, I've, I've started to see, you know, pop up on LinkedIn and other places, uh, get really excited that this conversation that was pretty um, active at one time and sort of went to sleep uh, is has made its way back. And I think the reason is, is that, I mean, we're seeing carbon markets are scaling like exponentially. And uh, we see tons of firms out here that have made net zero pledges, nations have made net zero pledges, and everybody's scrambling around trying to figure out where these, uh, you know, if they can't directly uh, mitigate their, their emissions right away, um, how they might purchase offsets, uh, whether in a voluntary or regulated market um, to, to deal with their emissions uh, until they can. But we're sort of at this point now where it's growing so fast that the, the, the rules are being made now. There's a lot of, you know, with, you know, the most recent, uh, uh, you know, work on the, on the Paris Accord that these rules are starting to be put in place. These voluntary markets have been around for a while, but there's a lot of focus and attention on what the rules are going to be like going into the future. Um, and so, now is sort of the time to figure out how this stuff is going to work because after this, you know, gains enough momentum and, and the markets reach a certain size, there's there's a degree of lock-in that, that occurs. So it, it was a sort of the moment to to figure this out, and we finally reached a you know a critical mass, I think, of of uh, of people participating in these markets that we we have to figure it out. Um, not to get too sidelined down the policy track, but I'm curious, uh, John, how who you think will be the people that finally make these rules. I mean, you have voluntary markets, you have regulatory markets, you have multiple countries, you have, you know, different scientific panels. How do you imagine all of these groups coming together and agreeing on these rules? So uh, I would, this would purely be my own speculation. Yeah. So this is a little bit outside, a little bit outside my wheelhouse, but the, the way I hear these conversations being had in my intuition is it's probably going to be a convergence, right? There, there are existing regulatory markets. Um, the, the folks participating in the voluntary markets are trying to get smart on this really quick. Um, there, are, there are obvious in, in incentive reasons to do that. I, I'm not sure where we end up at the, at the end of the day, but at, at some point, the, the, the criteria in the regulated markets and the criteria in the voluntary markets are going to have, there's going to have to be some convergence at some point, because I, I imagine, uh, you know, the regulatory markets aren't going to get any smaller. Uh, the voluntary markets are not going to get any smaller. And I think if there comes a point where, um, you know, reg where the voluntary market is subsumed by, you know, regulatory markets, people participating in that voluntary market want to know that they bought credits that, that are valid and hold up, you know, no matter, no matter what happens down the line. And so I think there's a lot of folks out there that are putting a lot of emphasis on making sure that they buy quality. Um, and uh, so there's a uh, lot of work to be done in that space to make sure that we, we can tell, teach people about what it is they're actually purchasing when they buy a credit. Yeah, so not to be a spoiler, but Bodhi, can you um, maybe tell us what Carbon Direct, which is kind of the end of your blog post, how they solved for this problem, the vertical versus her <laughs> horizontal, and what your, uh, you know, what, what their philosophy or your company's philosophy is around uh, this. Yeah, for sure. I, when we think about vertical and horizontal stacking, I think vertical stacking, it, it's very uncertain. It requires a lot of assumptions, a lot of modeling. And um, I think they, at Carbon Direct, our ethos and our philosophy about carbon removal is that it should be uh, completely robust. The science comes first and climate comes first. Um, and so for that reason, we 
what we did is we chose the horizontal stacking approach, but we took it a step further. And um, what we did is we actually, we, we bought the credits for today, um, but then we also bought credits to replace those credits in the future. So uh, we, we called it like a bridge approach. So we, brought the, we bought credits that are gonna last for a few years that are nature-based uh, nature credits. And then we also bought what's called ex-ante carbon removal credits um, from, uh, from, from a, a company that, or a set of companies that are providing permanent engineered carbon removal services. Um, so basically how that works out is for the next few years, our carbon emissions are covered by those short-term credits. And then when they expire, the, those ex ante permanent credits will have come online. So from today until forever, basically, we have offset, um, offset our emissions. And the, the beauty of that is that we are simultaneously supporting, we're supporting a great forestry project. And we're also helping to scale these really absolutely critical engineered carbon removal solutions. Yeah, that's that actually was what I was going to say. My favorite part of this is your actually your the 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 biggest argument in favor of nature-based solutions in in my opinion is the additional ecosystem benefits that these bring, right? So you're not and we and we're all familiar with that. So I love that you've sort of bridged as you said the gap and you'll be providing all these ecosystem benefits in addition to the carbon removal while then getting the durability that you need in 20 years. One quick follow-up question on the companies that you um, chose for the 20 year, at the 20 year mark. How did you guys analyze the likelihood of their success? And how are you thinking about if they don't succeed because you know these are all early stage startups, what your pivot would be and what your approach would be in that situation? Right, so the, the question is about basically the risk of uh, delivery failure. Like, yeah, exactly. And this, it's yeah, the, the, it's a great question for all ex ante credits, whether they be forestry credits or or DAC credits. Um, I actually don't have I don't have the answer to that uh, question offhand. Um, it's a really important question. The companies that we worked with, uh, we have a lot of trust in them, and we uh, yeah, we 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 know them well, so um, we're not too worried about those credits getting delivered, but. Uh, I think that, you know, if this kind of solution were to scale up, that would be a really important uh, problem to solve for. John, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I can speak sort of uh, generally. I wasn't involved in, in this particular process at, at Carbon Direct, but in, in general, right, we've, we've, we've um, uh, assembled a, a pretty deep bench of, of experts across the board. Um, and I know that, you know, in just in, in our work generally, um, we, we spend a lot of time looking at the projects that come our way um, and, and try to uh, both, both through you know, empirical, empirical data and expert opinion, uh, try to, to assess for ourselves and review um, you know, the quality of projects, uh, the, 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 the likelihood of success and the risk of reversal. I be, because I wasn't directly involved, it'd be hard for me to directly speak to how these particular projects were analyzed, but, uh, but they definitely get a, a certain amount of scrutiny. I mean, and I think it's completely fair in this current age to say, we don't know, like we're taking a risk, we're putting forward a philosophy that we believe in. And if it doesn't work, we pivot, right? I don't, I wasn't like uh, trying to put you in the spot in any way, but I, I am curious how people start thinking about these ex-ante and future technologies yep. and how you mitigate risk 
we talk a lot about mitigation and natural solutions, not as much in, I think, DAC in some ways because it's further out and people aren't like right. thinking in that mind frame. So anyway, let's kind of pivot to what Bodhi was talking about was gonna be the meat of the conversation, though I think your blog post is pretty meaty. Um, and discuss what last month was released by a research nonprofit called Carbon Plan. I'm sure most people who listen to this podcast know who they are. They released an analysis of 10-year accounting of carbon offsets, and it first examined how 10-year accounting works, the limitations, and how it might be improved. Additionally, uh, the Carbon Plan authors released a critique of the 10-year accounting method used by NCX, which is an offset seller. NCX um, also issued a response, and there's been a little bit of back and forth, which has shown sort of the tension maybe that's being developed around 10-year accounting and some of the big questions that still need to be answered in this space. However, NCX has not been slowed down because this week, I guess Tuesday, the day after your blog post uh, dropped, NCX announced a $50 million fundraising round from investors as diverse as JP Morgan and Mark Beninoff. And so obviously there is a lot of interest and money going being directed at this type of um, solution, carbon offset solution. NCX does forestry, if you aren't familiar. And this is also balanced with all the net zero plans that have prol proliferated and the need for durability, because to get to net zero, you have to reduce your, zero, your emissions forever. So let's just take a step back, because that's a lot of information. And maybe, John, you can explain to our listeners how ton in your accounting works and what, what its goal is. Um, so yes, this, this carbon plan uh, critique uh, for me in particular was really exciting because this is something I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about and I thought they did a really, uh, really good job of laying out the, the issues. Again, uh, this is a 20 year old conversation. You go back even 10, 15 years, people were even discussing, you know, does temporary storage have value at all? Um, and I think uh, this uh, this back and forth between Carbon Plan and NCX is actually quite productive because this is a this is a complicated uh, topic. Uh, ton year accounting, uh, in in the simplest terms, is a family of methods that is attempting to draw some sort of physical equivalency between carbon stored uh, for some period of time and uh, a permanent emission, an emission uh, permanent emission to the atmosphere. Um, I think that. Uh, the carbon plan has a, a sort of simple, uh, you know, initial way of explaining it, which is you can think of a ton year as uh, you can take a ton of carbon stored, multiply that times the number of years that you've stored it, um, and that gives you ton years. Uh, but I think conceptually, a more useful way to think about it is really a ton year is a measure of impact. So if you think about the radiative, uh, radiative forcing, which is essentially the, the change in the amount of outgoing um, uh, infrared thermal energy in the atmosphere that is caused by CO2 being put into the atmosphere, which is what causes the warming, that is caused by a ton of CO2 released into the atmosphere in the first year that it's in the atmosphere. That, that is, is what we would call a ton year. So initially in that first year, you put a ton into the atmosphere, you've trapped some additional energy in the atmosphere. Now in each subsequent year that that ton is in, in each subsequent year after the first year, CO2 is taken up by natural processes, um, you know, uh, land sinks, uh, the ocean sink. So in each subsequent year, its quote impact or radiative forcing effect is going to be less than it was in the first year that it was released. Um, so you can choose a, a, you know, an arbitrary time horizon, say 100 years, 
you release a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere. In year one, it produces a ton year of impact. In each subsequent year, it produces less than a ton year of impact. Till you get out to your 100 year mark, it's gonna be roughly half uh, the impact in that year. But you can sum all of those impacts and get to a total number uh, that tells you something about the, the about the radiated forcing impact of the ton without using the term radiated forcing and really small numbers. So if you use carbon plants calculator on their website, a one ton emission, if you arbitrarily stop counting at 100 years, produces about 50 ton years worth of, of climate impacts, physical impacts. Um, and ton year accounting, uh, there's two main, it's a family of methods, but there are two uh, general methods that most, most uh, um, calculations fall under. Um, attempt to figure out how much, how, how much carbon and for how long do you need to store it to prevent an equivalent amount of impact to that, uh, to the amount of impact of one ton over that time horizon. Uh, the most straightforward method is known as the Murakasta method, uh, which is, uh, it's enticing because it's very simple. I, if I store a ton of carbon uh, and I store it for 50 years, I multiply 50 times one ton and I've achieved 50 ton years of, of carbon storage. Um, there's already a problem there and I'll loop back to that, but uh, which carbon plan points out. The other, the other method that is, I, I think, you know, carbon plan made the, the point, uh, which I, I think was spot on, uh, that is a uh, more uh, physically correct is what's with the Leshoff method, which essentially treats, uh, if I store a ton of carbon for 50 years, it treats it as a delayed emission. So what happens in that case is that rather than taking tons and multiplying it times years stored, uh, you remove a ton of carbon from the atmosphere, store it for 50 years, and in year 51, it becomes a new emission. And the, the impacts now happen in year 51. You sum the, the impacts from year 51 to 100, and that is the harm that was caused, but the actual ton year benefit is the impact for the remaining 50 years that got pushed out past the time horizon. If that trying to hopefully do this in a way that people can kind of visualize what you've essentially done is you've taken the you're only you could choose 100 years as your arbitrary time horizon you could choose 20 you could choose 50 but essentially you've taken that impact curve from the one ton emission and you've slid it forward in time and some portion of those impacts are now beyond the time horizon and they're ignored and that is what you would count as your ton year benefit for storage which in, in terms of the way we think about things in, you know, the climate modeling space um, uh, is more physically um, uh, appropriate in terms of, of, of the benefits that actually accrue from temporary storage. You were going to loop back to one thing from the first description. So do you want to touch on that uh, really quickly before we move on? Sure. So one of the things that Carbon Plan uh, points out, uh, which I, which, which I thought was, you know, really helpful and I, I very much encourage people to go over there and play around with their calculator um, is that so I stated that if under the more cost of method if you store a ton uh, for 50 years you would have 50 ton years of, of credit right we also stated that one ton year of emissions um, uh, add out to 100 years is about 50 ton years of, of harm so what you're implicitly saying is if you stored one ton for more than 50 years that would actually be more beneficial than not emitting the CO2 in the first place. 
which we know just on it on its face, uh, you know, physically is is not the case. So the more Acosta method, what Carbon Plan was getting at, actually, uh, although it on the surface uh, claimed to be drawing a physical equivalency between emissions and storage, um, it actually breaks some rules that it, it's clear that it does not actually physically represent what's happening in the atmosphere. And the reason for that is that uh, CO2 in the atmosphere is decaying, and CO2 in storage is not. And so that that's where this this disjunction occurs. Thank you. That was very helpful. And this is very complex uh, thought process to get your brain sometimes wrapped around. So like John said, definitely check out the carbon plan website and play around with their calculators to visualize it a little bit better potentially. So um, Bodhi, just generically, how prevalent are these types of 10-year accounting methods within the global markets uh, for offsets, for carbon removal offsets? Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me, actually, because um, like John said, we've been talking about 10-year accounting for like 20 years. Um, but there's actually very, there, there are scant examples in the carbon market of uh, projects that are actually applying this. Um, you mentioned natural capital exchange NCX, uh, and to my knowledge, that's actually the only the only example that I can think of off the top of my head that's trying to apply a ten year accounting. Um, it's entirely possible that some you know some projects have tried in the past, but uh, this is it, I, I think in a way it's a product of necessity. Um, NCX is is innovating really. They're um, they're, they're pushing improved forest management. Uh, in in really innovative ways, which I admire. Um, one of those is that they are decreasing the the amount of time that landowners have to sign up. So landowners sign up for a year, um, they have to defer harvest for a year, which is essentially it unlocks a lot of participants that were excluded by improved forest management projects in the past that required either typically either forty years of commitment or hundred years of commitment. Um, so, so they by doing this, though, they're creating these one-year credits, and um, you know, we, we sort of as a as a uh, carbon offsets community, we've said that thirty years is is okay, and hundred years is okay, but um, one year is is kind of radical. So, they've really been pushing this ten-year accounting approach, and I think uh, have been a major driver in opening the conversation back up. Uh, another example, which I think is was partially born out of out of what NCX is trying to do is um, the offset registry Vera is now developing a 10-year accounting protocol um, and they have they, they've they've released a public draft that's open for comments now um, they have a fairly simple and conservative approach which is basically they are just using a 1 to 100 equivalency factor so one ton year or one ton of carbon storage is equal sorry 100 tons of carbon storage is equal to one year of carbon stored forever or for a hundred years in reality. Um, and so uh, th those are the two main examples. Um, with the Vera protocol, it's I'm not sure who's actually gonna use that because the economics actually work out. Um, I think in, in most cases, the economics work out pretty poorly. Uh, you know, you could imagine, uh, you could imagine like a, a, a 30 year project, uh, if, you, if you do the math, it's going to be a lot more beneficial to just sell that as as a permanent credit rather than 30 ton years of credit. Um, I think I think sort of like the 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 dirty secret of 
offsets markets today, though, is that we really don't have any explicit accounting for the for time value of carbon storage. So um, nobody's using ten year accounting, and you know, like I think uh, uh, NCX is getting a lot of heat for pushing this conversation. But the reality is, like, you can go on the carbon market today, and you can put a ten year soils project and a thousand year mineralization project in the same basket, and they're both just labeled a ton of CO2e. And um, in a lot of cases, the buyer doesn't even know the difference between the two unless they do some digging. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that the conversation is happening now because uh, it feels like it's kind of been ignored. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of smirked when you talked about that because sometimes I wonder if this is just a simple, I mean, I know it's not a simple answer, but like there's just a huge transparency question that's also being not acknowledged in the conversation as much. Like maybe this is just that people don't, it shouldn't get so complicated, but it should be that we one year is worth this much and a hundred years is worth this much. And if buyers understood that they could properly value the carbon removal credit. I um, and, and maybe that's what we should be also talking about more broadly and I'm not and I'm happy that NCX is kind of pushing the conversation like you said because I think it's important. So um, moving on though because we have a lot more to talk about and I want to make sure we kind of capture some other thoughts that came out of that uh, carbon plan analysis. Um, they so the carbon plan analysis you know was applying the two different 10-year accounting methods that John just described and he, the, one of the interesting things was that, you know, some projects could produce significantly different offset quantities for the same project. And this is where I think, you know, transparency only has its limitations, right? Because this is where the science and the, and the accounting really do hit, meet the road. So um, when extrapolated to the size of the world's voluntary carbon markets, this discrepancy could be huge. And um, so does it make it impossible to compare Two corporate climate plans. If each of the carbon or each of the companies is purchasing offsets that are derived with totally different calculations, and so is the answer here to force people to give us their calculations. It may be back to transparency. I don't know. Yeah. What do you, what do you guys think? I think you're absolutely right that uh, transparency is key here, and transparency is exactly what we don't have in the current market. Like we just said, like, you know, you can put a 10 year project and a thousand year project in the same basket without really even knowing the difference um, in terms of the climate impact. Um, this was kind of the, the challenge that we were trying to get at in our blog post is uh, working towards a transparent framework for, uh, for accounting for, you know, these different methods. And we talked about horizontal stacking, which is just basically renting credits over time. Um, it's very transparent. It's very straightforward. Um, with all of these tenure methods, uh, there's always going to be assumptions embedded. Um, no matter, you know, even if we even if we create the perfect tenure accounting method, there's inevitably there's going to be climate modeling assumptions. There's going to be discounting assumptions potentially. Um, and so, I, I think that transparency is going to be absolutely key if we adopt if we decide to adopt those methods as as a carbon offset community because um, you're absolutely right that we could you know we could end up with uh, one measure of ten years that is half or even a tenth of another measure of ten years and uh, nobody would be the wiser and it would be even harder to find out for for the average uh, offset buyer than yeah 
Yeah. John, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just say, you know, so transparency, I think, is the key, the key word here. Um, I think there is, um, you know, uh, Bodhi understands probably the markets themselves uh, far, far better than I do, but just uh, thinking in generalizations uh, and what I do know, um, we're sort of talking about three things here. We're talking about, A, we have, we have credits out there that have no sort of fundamental logic uh, underlying the, you know, their, their value. You know, we're not really paying attention to how long they last at all. And then we have the two methods that we've discussed. Two, we have two tonnier methods that we've discussed, that uh, where even tonnier doesn't mean the same thing, depending on uh, what you, uh, uh, depending on which method that you choose. So I think for me, you know, what it's really about is being very explicit about where you derive your valuation for your credit from. And um, you know, it, when we as we develop better methods for accounting for durability. Um, it's probably not going to be the case that we, uh, I don't see anyways, anytime soon that we've all adopted the same standard, but at least if you are um, clear about the assumptions that you're making in the valuation system that you're using to, uh, to account for the durability of your offsets, as well as other characteristics of offsets, there is at least opens the door for someone to go into the market, understand how you got there, and harmonize, you know, across, you know, uh, well, we do our accounting this way, but at least, you know, we know, uh, you know, what the characteristics are of the, of the offset that we're buying, and we can we can decide to calculate that however we want to value it. And then Bodhi, I think, taught, just briefly mentioned this, but discount rates. So maybe, um, Bodhi, you might want to explain what they are and, and then how they factored. Maybe, John, you can explain how they factored into the NCX um, Sure. which has taken 10-year accounting and added another layer to it in their analysis. So Bodhi, if you want to start us off. Sure, I can start us off, but I'll pass it quickly to John Dees. Uh, he thinks about discount rates more than I do. Uh, so discount rates aren't anything fancy or special. We use discount rates all the time in business decisions. Um, in, in climate impact modeling, we use discount rates. Discount rates are a very, very active topic of discussion in the climate modeling community. Um, I think people dedicate their whole years to, or the, their whole careers to, um, you know, figuring out what the right discount rate is to apply in like an integrated assessment model. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very lively space and fundamentally it comes down to a question of how much do we value the future? And I think that in, you know, in a business context, companies can make that decision for themselves and they can decide internally, um, you know, uh, how, what kind of valuation they put on the future um, to make the right business decision. I think when we're talking about society writ large and the economy writ large, then um, you have to, you know, with, with discounting, you're suddenly thinking about uh, our grandkids and you're thinking about, you know, the future of the earth. <laughs> uh, and I think, not to take words out of your mouth, John, but you said occasionally that um, you know certain discount rates can make catastrophic events in the future look like nothing. Um, so we have to be really careful about them. But I'll uh, I'll, I'll pass it off to you to give a, a give a more technical and thoughtful response. Oh sure, thanks, buddy. And <laughs> um, yeah, uh, to echo the the final sentence there from Bodhi. I do say that a lot. Uh, it worries me about discount rates, but that's not to say that we shouldn't use them, right? The uh, there there is a logic. Um, I guess a, a good place to start is that, you know, one of the things that makes NCX's uh, tenure accounting uh, method different, maybe not entirely, entirely unique. I think we've seen other approaches that use discount rates. Um, but I, Carbon Plan's primary issue with the way that NCX is using discount rates 
is that Tunyers, uh, you know, uh, claim to be and and NCX. I think the way they've sort of marketed their their solution is that they're they're drawing some sort of physically physical equivalence between the carbon removal and the physical effects of of climate impacts. But then they're taking a discount rate, which is actually an economic tool, um, and they're discounting, or at least appears appear to be discounting physical impacts. And I think Carbon Plan, you know, pointed out that maybe that that um, you know de degrades the claim of physical equivalence uh, somewhat when you do that. Um, and I think you know, for myself, I I, I would agree that, that discount rates can can be appropriate. Uh, but I think when you use discount rates, you want to be in an economic framework, which is where those uh, there and there are alternatives uh, to tenure accounting that do that do situate themselves in, inside of an economic framework where discounting seems more appropriate. But at a fundamental level, the a discount rate says, you know, I think some things that are intuitively true. Uh, you know, there there's we we have what the, you know economists call a pure rate of time preference. You know, can I if I I could eat ice cream today. I could eat ice cream a month from now. Uh, we tend to have a human desire. We value the thing now more than we value the thing in the future. It's probably different for everyone, but collectively there's probably some rate as a society. And then there's a, a financial component to discount rates, which is you know, the economy is, you know, at least in good times, assumed to be growing. Uh, we, we improve technology. It's a general assumption and uh, not saying it's right or wrong, but a general assumption in, in most economic models that the future is wealthier than, than the past. Um, and so there is some sort of opportunity cost to um, anything you might invest today, whether it's climate change mitigation or anything else, uh, and alternative ways that that money could have been used, that, that investment could have been used that would generate a return. And so in an economic framework, your discount rate is really about trading off uh, current benefits for future benefits or harms. Um, and in that in that context, they they can be appropriate, but obviously they're highly controversial uh, as to what those discount rates should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I I'm I'm going to wrap up with this final question for you both. Um, and this is I feel like we've only scratched the surface, and there's so much more to talk about, and so much more for at least me and my brain to absorb and understand. But um, I was wondering if you found the NCX response, um, and I'll ask both of you, Liz, like I said, to be compelling that this is an economic, I mean, I think it boiled down to like, this is an economic issue, not just a physical issue. And so we have to be able to translate this to an economic uh, credit, if you will, or economic problem. Um, and so John, did you find that compelling? And Bodhi, I'll end with you and ask you the same question. Uh, yes, yes, and no. So my, uh, I think I, I personally I agree with. I, I think it's about framing, right? So as long as we, I think if you use econo economic tools like discount rates, then you most likely should be in, in employing a, a an entire economic framework, which is sort of the world that we end up in when we calculate things like the social cost of carbon. We use integrated assessment models that couple climate impacts. Economic damages, which you know, arguably uh, we care about temperature rise, but ultimately the way that translates to humans is uh, in in terms of impacts and in, in economics we translate those into dollars. And in that space, when you're explicitly using an economic framework, discount rates make a lot more sense. Um, I think that carbon plan maybe has a point that using this 
without explicitly going into the economic realm, it's sort of like we're shoehorning a, a physical equivalence together with an economic tool. And inherent, I, I, you know, I think a carbon plan was pretty clear about this and, and, and it probably fits well with what I'm, my thinking on it as well. It's, it's not really an issue with the discount rate per se, uh, so much as how we're, we're framing, especially when, we use, when we're using the terminology of physical equivalence, uh, because really discount rates are, uh, you can't really discount a physical process. You can discount impacts from physical processes. Um, and I, I think that, uh, and I think NCX is, uh, is, at least from what I can tell in their response, is, is really open to these types of critiques and, and is really thinking their way through it. Um, but um, yeah, that, that was sort of my main takeaway. I, I, you know, they, they've, they've, they've nudged in, in the past uh, and, and moved to different assumptions uh, based on feedback, critique and conversation. Um, so I, I uh, really estimate that this is all in goodwill. It just, uh, it's, it's complicated. Uh, yeah, couldn't have said it better myself, John. And I think I would come back to to the issue of transparency. Like um, fundamentally, short-term storage has value. That's um, that 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 is certainly true. Even if it's for one year, there's some there's some value in that. Um, but the the fundamental challenge is we have to figure out and we have to agree as as a community what that value is and how we can transparently articulate that value in the context of carbon offsetting. Um, and I think that's, uh, I don't think it's, it's not easy. Um, that's why we haven't figured it out to date. And we're just starting to talk about it now after, you know, 20 years, 20 years, people have been publishing papers on this stuff. We're starting to talk about it again. Um, but personally, I think uh, I, I'm excited that this conversation is going forward because frankly, we need all the carbon removal we can get, right? If we're going to, like the the IPCC working group two paper just report just came out and like we're in climate change um, we don't have a lot of time to you know to just sit around waiting for for solutions to develop um, and so I think it's to me it kind of feels like all hands on deck so we need the short term solutions as well as the long term solutions but that's not going to work unless uh, unless we have clear frameworks to articulate the value of those short term solutions so I'm looking forward to see what comes out of this conversation in the coming months and years, hopefully months. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Bodhi, that it's uh, it's all hands on deck. Let's throw what we can at the wall, see what sticks, see what works. And, and all of these solutions have value uh, inherently in them. So you two might not know, but I always end the segment with a good news, like something that makes me happy in the world of sustainability usually. Last week I deviated a little bit and got into uh, female soccer, professional soccer, but generally it's around <laughs> sustainability. Um, and so I will end the session today just talking about the fact that Guinness has launched a huge initiative with Irish Brewers of Barley to try to reduce the volume of CO2 generated by the production of the crop. Of course, it's near and dear to my heart because Nori is uh, launched in soil ag. So seeing other companies and other places in the world adopt regenerative agriculture practices is fantastic. Really excited to see the amount of support that both the government of Ireland and the a big major brand within Ireland is putting forward to produce a nature-based solution. And so just want to give a shout out to Guinness and the rest of Ireland for some pretty creative and innovative work. With that, 
John, Bodhi, thank you both for being with us. Bodhi, particularly since it's kind of late in Italy right now. Um, I really appreciate it. And hopefully you guys can join us again in the future. Would love that. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. <laughs>